Welcome to GeoInteresting, presented by the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Today on the show, we're joined by Ms. Cleo Loy and Professor Stephen Tingay. Ms. Loy is an Australian astrophysicist who recently earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Sydney School of Physics. Professor Tingay is the director of the Murchison Widefield Array Project and professor of radio astronomy at Curtin University. Stay tuned for GeoInteresting. Stephen, I would like to start with you. Can you explain the Murchison Widefield Array? Uh, the Murchison Widefield Array is a, a radio telescope. Uh, it operates at what astronomers uh, would think of as low radio frequencies at the 80 to 300 megahertz range. So this is 80 megahertz is around about the frequency that FM radio operates at. So just to give people a sense of uh, where we are in the radio spectrum. So in astrophysics, this is considered low radio frequencies. Uh, when most people think about radio telescopes, they think about really uh, large sort of satellite dishes, big uh, curved dishes that focus radio waves. The MWA is uh, quite different. It's called a, an interferometer. So this is where instead of one really large single dish antenna, we build out lots and lots of small antennas, distribute those antennas over uh, many kilometres, uh, and then combine the signals from those individual antennas to effectively produce a telescope that's equivalent to a really massive dish. Um, we have 128 of those individual antennas, and they're distributed over a three-kilometre uh, diameter area. The telescope is located in a quite remote area of Western Australia called the Murchison. Uh, the Shire of the Murchison is the only uh, Shire in Australia that does not have a gazetted town and it has an area of 41,000 square kilometres. It also has a population of around about 100 people. So that's the equivalent of having a population of 100 people in a country the size of the Netherlands. So it's a very, very sparsely populated area. And we need to be uh, out in that part of the country to get away from all of the radio emissions that people generate with mobile phones, cars, microwave ovens, any sort of uh, industrial activity. All of those things produce radio waves that are many, many times uh, more powerful than the very weak radio waves that we're seeking to look at from the universe. Uh, it's also an interesting telescope in that the individual antennas have no moving parts. So instead of mechanically steering a large disc, dish to look at different parts of the sky, uh, all of our steering is done purely electronically. So it means it's a very uh, easy telescope to build, very easy to operate, uh, and very uh, cheap and efficient to operate, which means that we can build a big telescope for not very much money. So it's sort of uh, defining the future of how radio telescopes are going to look. Um, so the MWA 
is a, a precursor telescope for a much, much bigger telescope called the Square Kilometre Array. Um, the, the MWA is primarily built to uh, look at uh, astrophysics. So the, the main science driver for the MWA is to tune into the signals generated by hydrogen gas in the first billion years of the life of the universe, the first billion years after the Big Bang, and uh, watch how that gas evolves and produces the very first stars and galaxies and black holes. So the MWA, in a sense, is a time machine that's looking back to the almost the very beginning of the universe and seeing where all of the stars and galaxies that we see around us now uh, came from. Um, so astrophysics is its, its main goal, but as we've operated the telescope um, over the last couple of years, the, um, the number of non-astrophysics applications have grown and grown and grown. Uh, and one of those is the, the detailed study of the ionosphere that uh, Clio's work has, um, has uncovered. And so um, what we're finding is that a lot of the science that we're doing with the MWA now is not necessarily the traditional astrophysics, but more of these fun um, non-astrophysics applications. Cleo, can you explain the ionosphere? How does it affect your work? So if you were to look through water, let's say you're at the bottom of a swimming pool and you're trying to look at something that's above the surface, if you have waves in that pool, then that object or that person or something will look all ripply and distorted. Um, this is the same physical process by which the ionosphere affects our images of the sky, the celestial sky, the universe, because we're looking from the ground through this ionosphere, which is a plasma. It consists of um, a gas, a fluid where electrons have been ripped off um, neutral atoms and molecules, and those electrons interact with radio waves, and they bend the parts of radio waves much like water bends light. So it makes images of the universe um, appear to wobble around, a bit like how waves in a pool make images of, you know, um, things above that wobble. Mm -hmm. How was this discovery made? Can you walk me through your timetable starting with how your research began? So the MWA began operations in mid-2013, um, uh, sorry, mid-2013. Um, I began my project as an undergraduate on this at the start of 2014. So it was six months after the telescope had begun operation that I actually you know, got to have a look at the data, which was very exciting. So I basically had first dibs on, on this. Um, and it was my supervisor and her research group uh, are focused on time domain astrophysics. They look at exploding stars, things that are far away in space, and they're not so interested in what's going on um, on Earth with the ionosphere. But because the ionosphere affects our observations potentially um, in a, a damaging way, uh, what she and her group wanted to know were how badly these, how bad these effects were. And so I was given the task of examining the data, um, having a look at measuring these distortions, and then um, uh, giving them you know, uh, feedback on that. So, so when I did this analysis, I, I had no idea, well, m I didn't know very much about the ionosphere at all, except that the Earth has one. Um, and I looked at the distortions that it was causing um, in the celestial sky, and I saw these incredibly organized structures that I was just knocked off my chair when I, when I saw that um, for the first time. I wasn't expecting that at all. I had no idea what the ionosphere did on an everyday basis. 
and and so that, that was incredible and this was um i think it was in april probably somewhere near the beginning of 2014 that i first saw this um, in the data no idea what they were and um, it was after discussions with many people within the MWA collaboration and also researchers at other universities, um, including from NASA, um, that someone eventually suggested, could you be looking at these duct-like structures that you know people had been thinking existed? And I went, oh, okay, well, I've no, I don't know what those are, but I'll have a look. And the properties matched perfectly. So I said, you know, I'll write a paper on this um, and we'll, we'll get that um, you know, out there so that the world knows about it. Initially, your findings were met with skepticism. What's it like for it to be a young scientist to have more experienced scientists dismissing your findings? Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that, that was a strange experience. I mean, including my supervisor, she, she was also very skeptical towards that. And I, I suppose I felt, um, I did feel very vulnerable. I felt like I was alone because my research group have no interest in the ionosphere. So there's actually no one with any expertise in and what it might or might not be doing. So I was, I was really on my own there. I had the internet that was about it for background knowledge. Um, so, so yeah, and it was also, besides that, I guess there was also this frustration. Um, it was like, they just don't get it because I had reasons, uh, actual reasons for why I thought this was a, an earth-based phenomenon and not something uh, you know, caused um, by image uh, problems or something in the celestial sky. So it, yeah, so there was that frustration there. And so I I'm, did my best to explain this to them. And I guess they, they are good scientists, so it didn't take long before they were convinced that this was a real phenomenon. Although people um, still thought that the result was, was crazy. Mm. So did I, um, and so, so is everyone who's looked at the data. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure dismiss is the right word. Not it quite. Was, um, the, the process was the classic scientific process. Mm. Yes, yeah, so it was a, a reasonable healthy process. healthy ske skepticism. Yes. Um, and you need to be more skeptical the more exciting and new the result is. Um, so I, I followed that email interaction and the interaction of you with the collaboration and other people, and it was a very, very healthy, very normal um, process uh, applying the scientific method to a really new and exciting result. Yeah. The, the difference was that, as you say, as an undergraduate, putting Cleo in that situation is very unusual. And in the process of Cleo answering everyone's questions in you know, comprehensively and in detail and arguing a case, it was re revealed that Cleo is not your normal undergraduate student, but, uh, but uh, highly exceptional. So it was a very interesting experience to see that. For the result itself, Cleo's part in it, and I think the way that the collaboration operated in you know applying a healthy skepticism so i think it was a long way from just sort of dismissal you may have felt it was well the email chain was actually the good bit where i got to say um well i, well, I kind of had the arguments in my head already and could you know form them and, and send them out to people i guess the first dismissal was offline so it was um there was a teleconference um where there were a couple of researchers and also my supervisor there and i said that oh you know there's these crazy things in the sky and they were like oh have you considered this problem this problem this problem um and and none of their what they were saying was anything that um might have included the possibility that there was a physical phenomenon. So I mentioned, you know, how about the magnetic field? So I actually mentioned magnetic field right at the start. Mm -hmm. There was one of my first um, um, 
I guess, possibilities that popped into my mind. But they were saying that magnetic field, you know, no magnetic field doesn't do anything like that. Um, but these are not people who work in the magnetic field. So I did take that, you know, that they were just, it wasn't something they'd seen before. And so, you know, I, I shouldn't take it that, you know, it absolutely means it can't be the magnetic field. Um, so there, there was that, that experience there. You use the Murchison Widefield Array stereoscopically to achieve 3D vision. Can you explain how that technique provided the breakthrough? So the MWA um, has a finite size. It's um, spread over a region three kilometers across. And so you've got antennas or receivers that are separated um, on the ground. Now, if you want to know how far away an object is, I mean, you think about your two eyes. They're separated by some distance on your head. And if you were to close one eye, open another eye, you see an object that's you know, fairly close by, um, or close by enough appear to shift. So that angular shift um, of the object in your field of view lets your brain work out how far away it is. And so the MWA can be used in an analogous manner. You've got something that's fairly close by. I mean, it's around the Earth rather than in the distant universe. And so what you can do is, uh, so the signals recorded by the MWA antennas are all stored on disk. And you can retrieve those from your um, database and you can group them according to where they come from on the ground. And when you do that, you form um, two sets of images, one from the uh, left half of the array and one from the right half. And you see that there is a slight shift in the pattern that you see in the sky. And based on what you know about how, uh, how far away those two groups of antennas are, you can use that to work out how high um, the structures are. Was it a typical Eureka moment? Um, it, was, it was incredible. I mean, I, well, firstly, it was born of frustration. So I was thinking to myself, you know, we want to publish this, these results, but we can't tell people how high they are. I and mean, what kind of, well, it, it probably wasn't that bad, but I was just frustrated that we didn't have that crucial piece of information because it really sets the whole um, physical um, context of, of where they are in space. So I thought, okay, come on, there must be something we can do. Um, and then I realized that, uh, well, firstly, I thought to myself, maybe we can build another MWA next to the first one and use that you know, distance between them to do the triangulation. And I thought, hold on. The MWA itself, you know, has a number of antennas that are not, you know, all in one place. So what if we just split the MWA like that? And I then shot off an email to the person who does imaging, and she got back to me really quickly. She said, that's a brilliant idea. Um, we'll, I'll do that right away. And then, and then I got this results. I measured the shift, and I was like, this actually works. It was incredible. And I don't think that had ever been done before with a radio telescope at least not that I'm aware of. Not in the exact way, but I mean the concept of parallax is not a new thing. No, no, it, but with a radio telescope, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's ever been tried before. No, it must I'm, only be because the MWA has so many antennas yes. that this is possible. Yes, so um, the MWA is unusual because it has hundreds, oh, 128 antennas. Most um, imaging arrays don't have that many, and you need lots of antennas to make a good image. So if you were to split another array and a half, it, it just wouldn't fare very well. So it's a technical capability that's helped there as well. Dr. Tara Murphy, your undergraduate supervisor, said that your youth and inexperience, compared to other scientists, of course, was a benefit because you approached the problem without preconceptions. Do you agree? Um, in some ways, yes, because what she's talking about is the difference between an undergraduate student who's not sort of been immersed in a particular field of research for a long time, um, but 
not someone who knows nothing because I, I did have to know some things about physics and, and the earth. Um, but what she means is that if you, I was, for example, a space physics researcher that had been, you know, using a certain um, fixed set of techniques to study the earth, um, I would probably not be able to bridge the gap very easily into another community, which is radio astronomy, um, who operates these instruments. So there is a, is a quite a big gap between the people who do ionospheric research and the people who work in astrophysics. Um, they don't talk very much to each other. And so I would not have been able to firstly access the data if I was a researcher in the other field. Um, and if I was a radio astronomer, um, as in someone who had been working in astronomy for a long time, I would see the ionosphere as being a problem and probably not be so um, uh, curious or motivated to pursue you know, the physics of what's going on. So what does this mean? What do you expect to come out of this discovery? I've read that this could help the accuracy of GPS. Well, GPS um, satellites I mean, rely on radio wave communication between you know, space and the ground, and the presence of these structures um, distorts the signals. So you can get things like um, um, position errors, uh, because of, of the way the radio waves bend as they pass through um, these tubes. Um, so, but what, the, the main thing I see, the main significant thing about this result, in my opinion, is it's the discovery of a capability um, of an instrument to look, be able to cover the ionosphere so broadly and in so much detail to see structures like this for the first time. Um, and that could be a starting point in, let's say, diagnosing where these occur, how often they occur, um, are there any predictive factors that um, you know, might, might herald their appearance somewhere that we could look out for and say, you know, GPS signals during this time may be unreliable or that kind of thing. It, it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem because it can't, but as a diagnostic tool, I think this is an incredible start. Yeah, I, I think I'd, I largely agree with that. And Cleo's looked at a small fraction of all of our data. so. Who's to say that this is the last interesting effect that's going to be uh, a new discovery out of these data sets? So I think there's, we're only really starting to scratch the surface with what's possible here. Um, what does it all mean? Well, the exciting answer to that for me is that I don't know, which means that we've got to come to places like the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency to talk with experts who know a lot more about us about why this could be uh, really important. So I think it's a, a fantastic example of people from different disciplines coming together over a new result and uh, learning things off each other. So the great thing is that I don't know. So that's always the best answer to a question mm -hmm. because it means there's something new to discover mm -hmm. or something new to learn about. Uh, but I really think we're, we're just scratching the, the surface of the capabilities here. Uh, which means that whatever comes next may be you know, even more exciting. Mm -hmm. The Murchison Widefield Array has shown the value of next-generation radio telescopes. What's next? Uh, well, specifically for us, the future um, is the Square Kilometre Array. So the MWA has uh, a few thousand individual antennas uh, spread over three kilometres. Uh, and that's an official precursor telescope for this much, much larger square kilometre array. So whereas the MWA cost $50 million Australian dollars, uh, the SKA is a billion euro scale telescope. So the MWA is blazing the path for a much bigger 
uh, array in Western Australia. So whereas MWA has a few thousand antennas, the first stage of the SKA will have about 100,000 antennas, and then the final instrument will have of order 2 million antennas. So at the moment, we're collecting data, bates, uh, data, data volumes of petabytes in size. So a petabyte is 1,000 terabytes, a terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes, uh, to give people an idea of the scale. But the SKA will deal in exabytes, which are thousands of petabytes uh, and beyond. So we're really on a, a big learning curve. Uh, and it's the, this new style of building highly capable, highly flexible telescopes with no moving parts that generate vast amounts of data and look at huge uh, swathes of the universe in one go that are really going to uncover some of these fundamental questions of astrophysics, like where did the first stars come from? What happened in the first billion years of the universe? But uh, Clio's work shows that um, instruments like the SKA will be incredibly exciting for things much closer to home, like the ionosphere as well. So it's a very, a very rich scientific future. Thank you both for joining me today. For more information, you can visit the ARC Center of Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics at caastro.org. And for more information on the Murchison Widefield Array, visit mwatelescope.org. You can also follow Professor Tingay on Twitter at S-T-I-N-G-A-Y. Thank you for listening to GeoInteresting, presented by the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Never miss an episode of GeoInteresting by subscribing on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on NGA, visit nga.mil and follow us on Twitter at nga underscore geoint.